You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 17th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show... This is an, requires hundreds of people working on the logistics and the security of it. Most of those people are either furloughed or victims of the president's shutdown. Delay your speech or submit it in writing. How the U.S. government shutdown is affecting Donald Trump's State of the Union address. My guests Oscar Guardiola Riviera and Jonathan Fenby will be discussing these and the day's other top stories, including... Friends for now, the leaders of Brazil and Argentina vow to put the past behind them and improve relations between their countries. With four months to go before elections to the European Parliament, a new poll puts the party of French leader Emmanuel Macron ahead of Marine Le Pen's far-right National Front. All that plus a food fight down under. Are EU and Australian officials any closer to resolving a dispute over Aussie-produced feta cheese and Prosecco wine? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Oscar Guardiola Riviera. He's a reader in law at Birkbeck, University of London, and Jonathan Fenby. Jonathan is chairman of China Research. He's also director of European political research at TS Lombard. Gentlemen, welcome both of you to the programme. Let's start first with Donald Trump, because he may have to hold off from delivering his State of the Union address to Congress on January the 29th. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said security risks caused by a partial closure of the US government means the president must either delay the speech or submit it in writing. While the shutdown, the longest on record, is now in its 27th day with no sign of a resolution. Ms Pelosi has denied playing politics and says the shutdown is hurting the finances of the Department of Homeland Security and Intelligence Services, both of which are responsible for security at the event, rather ironic. So, Jonathan, is Nancy Pelosi being disingenuous when she denies playing politics? I think I think you can say that. <laughs> uh, I mean, the Democrats here see see an opportunity, and of course, the the Secretary uh, for Homeland Security has denied that there's any problem. So we're in this usual uh, hall of mirrors here. But the Democrats are obviously intent on pushing uh, what they see as a weakness for Trump that he's backing himself into a corner with his base. On on this whole issue of the shutdown. Uh, and they, as one of them said it, uh, welcome to the new democratic majority, get used to it. <laughs> I guess, Oscar, that look, if, if this is correct, Jonathan's interpretation that it is just playing politics, look, at the end of the day, it's going to embolden the president and his base because he'll say, here you are, I'm a victim of democratic politics. They're kicking me well, uh, surely Trump will try to, uh, uh, you know, turn this upside down as uh, he usually does. But it's clearly an attempt uh, by Pelosi and Schumer to uh, get uh, uh, inside the president's skin, under his skin, uh, as uh, we say. And, but what this shows is uh, something uh, much more interesting. What we are witnessing is uh, a, a real conflict between the executive, 
trying to impose its will on Congress and Congress, uh, uh, you know, mm, kicking, uh, back. kicking back, mm. particularly uh, the more the more progressive sectors of Congress, which is why also it might be a misnomer to uh, uh, name this a government shutdown. It's a partial shutdown mm. uh, of those agencies and programs that uh, tend to help the many. Uh, not the few. Uh, there is a very interesting article in the nation, uh, uh, you know, uh, building on that premise. Uh, whether one believes the premise or not, or buys buys it wholesale, it, it does mean that uh, there is really uh, political intent, not just political playing here. Mm. But but let's develop that idea a bit a bit further, Jonathan. This idea of the executive, the president up mm. against um, Congress. I mean, look, th this is the first blast of what we were told could potentially happen, that in spite of all the talk about bipartisanship, it was never really going to happen. Absolutely. I mean, Trump and bipartisanship are not two words you associate uh, together very easily. I mean, technically, um, the, the president has to actually be invited by the two houses of Congress to come and, and give the State of the Union. So, you know, you can you can say from that uh, formal point of view, um, uh, Congress has the right not uh, to invite uh, him. But uh, this is, I think, just, you know, one of what are going to be a whole series of standards Standoffs between the White House and the House of Representatives and the Democrats there uh, over the next two years. All of it, in a sense, focused on uh, the what Trump would like to be his re-election campaign in a couple of years' time. Mm. So we're in this very long period, and how much harm that actually does um, to the kind of people Oscar was was, was talking about uh, a moment ago, uh, and then to the economy and to the whole working of government. I mean, you know. It is quite possible that, for instance, we won't have economic data uh, from the, the government in the US oh. uh, in a few months' time. Sure. So, Certainly the big numbers coming up are the non-farm payroll, the first Friday all of those, the year. All month. those numbers, yes. yes mm. yeah, yeah, they were, I mean, they'll probably be independent other numbers there, but the whole of that. And ironically enough, I just read today that the US Trade Representative's office, which is due to resume talks with the Chinese uh, at the end of this month, <laughs> about a third <laughs> of their uh, staff are laid off. So what the effect, I mean, no doubt you know, the top people will still be there. But the debilitating long-term effect of this um, mm. is is absolutely is going to be very considerable. And Trump, as I said earlier, seems to have backed himself into a corner on this. And you've got this tit for tat. And he's not somebody to uh, give way and concede in that kind of uh, what he would see as a battle for his legitimacy and his mm. re-election. But, but as we know, Oscar, Trump is a showman. So he might actually see this not as a hindrance, but as an opportunity. In other words, OK, you won't let me speak at, co at Congress, mm. but there's absolutely no reason why I couldn't go to an arena in Texas somewhere where I know so, I've got this very, very powerful yeah. base and I can give my speech there. And I know that the world's press will be watching me. You're very right, Juliet. In fact, when I was reading uh, uh, the news, I was immediately thinking, oh, he's going to use this. He's going to set up sure. a stage uh, somewhere uh, like uh, Texas, and uh, he's going to present himself as a victim. This is precisely, this is his agenda. This is his uh, shtick. This is the only thing he can use and the way he communicates with his bases upon this uh, sort of self-victimhood uh, theme. Uh, and of course, that he knows that's the way he can get uh, votes. Mm. Mm. And, and I guess as well that, um, again, if he, if he does that and having the adjuration of the crowd, etc., is going to make him more determined 
to dig his heels in, but also it's the fact that Nancy Pelosi, who he utterly despises, tried to impose this restriction on him. She backed him into a corner and he lashed out. Yeah, and it's very dangerous, I think, for the Democrats. They can very easily be seen as uh, wreckers. Mm, Because they're baiting the bear. For something that, you know, State of the Union, okay, it's given by the president who comes from one party, but it's seen, I think, as a kind of national occasion more often. Uh, Although what Trump would say, (laughs) who knows? there, um, all on the border uh, and the wall. Um, But there is quite a danger that Trump will become the victim in Mm. a lot of people's minds outside his own base. I mean, his own base is not enough for re-election. But if the Democrats get this reputation as being uh, wreckers, as I say, uh, destroyers only out for their own partisan interest, uh, they may lose, you know, a certain amount of support in middle America, which they need next time around. Mm. And and Oscar, let's stay with this idea of of Trump actually going rogue in terms of choosing an arena in Texas or wherever Mm. to actually uh, address his, his audience. I suppose that there is that danger that the State of the Union is is, is meant to be um, a look at the agenda for the year ahead. There's absolutely no reason why he can't go off script here, and heaven knows what he'd say. Well, but the, the, that in itself is symptomatic. Yes, the State of the Union, which, uh, uh, you know, uh, is not, uh, uh, I mean, there are historical precedents for, uh, you know, the State of the Union being given in, in writing in a, uh, to Congress and so on, rather than uh, physical appearance. This, is, this has become a national occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if uh, Trump uh, does uh, stage a show of uh, his own, he would do so uh, addressing only his, uh, uh, you know, uh, core audience, which is to say he will preach to the converted. Mm. It will no longer be uh, a national location, but rather symptomatic of divisions which already exist. And it is also important to notice in Pelosi's uh, words, which we heard before, how she refers to full law uh, workers and those uh, people who are mm. uh, being harmed really yeah. by uh, Trump's tactics because these many, most of them are people who live paycheck by paycheck paycheck yeah. and the uh, fact and that it, they, they don't they they cannot do so people are uh, uh, losing his med, their meds and so on and so forth that is also uh, uh, causing, going to cause harm to to Trump and in addition to those workers there are of course all the contractors and suppliers yes. of the government who apparently just don't know whether they're going to be paid or not whether mm. they should be working and so on so you know this is is a quite a, a dangerous uh, situation for the working of government sure because it, it does appear as if he has underestimated the the economic disaster that he could actually bring to the country or that he is bringing because of this this chain effect that it it goes beyond the 800,000 workers sure. if Correct. you get that added with you know slowing gro- slower growth prospects who knows where the china trade war is going to well we're uh, we're ready we're ready so we really have data to that yes, to that you're, extent. you're in the downturn here and uh, mm. yes and also you know causing this sort of government paralysis uh, well uh, we we here in britain we we know very well how that feels like so there are also interesting resonances between these cases in different countries. I have a horrible yeah. feeling you're trying to drag in the I Brexit. Not, We're getting towards Brexit. We're going towards Brexit. Certainly the executive and the legislature, you know, you've got this mirrored on either side of yeah, the yeah, around the no. edges there. But that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying there, but let, let, let's, stay, let's stay in the United States. I'm trying to avoid <laughs> Europe for the moment. Yes. But, I mean, look, we've, we've looked at the financial realities. Certainly we've touched on them in the time available. But could those financial realities actually force Trump 
to the negotiating table. Someone's got to blink first on this. And at the end of the day, he's very conscious of polls and what they tell him. And so far, the finger of blame for this situation is pointing very firmly in his direction. And him. Yeah. And it also depends on the markets. Yeah. I mean, how, how the stock market, which yeah. he seems but very, it, very sensitive to. But that's to, the weird to... thing as well, though, because most economists say that there is no correlation between the stock market and, and economic behaviour. You can't really bring the two things no, together. No, there isn't. And, and we also know Trump is really stubborn. He's not someone who just reacts to market forces. He sort of thinks of himself as a creator of those forces rather than as uh, mm. uh, someone uh, driven by them. So uh, I'm not sure he will pay attention to those, but reality will kick in at some point. But but so so do you think? Well, it's it's a question to throw back to either of you, really. I mean, who do you think will blink first on this? Will the Democrats blink first, or will it be Trump? Whomever blinks loses here. So, yeah. I think this is going to to uh, go uh, for a very long time, all the way into uh, the the run up to elections. Yeah, I, as I said, I, I think that you know you have to see it in that long term uh, context, and certainly the way this has developed over the last month. Uh, blinking seems less and less likely because of the the way it has evolved. You don't see either side seeking a compromise. Mm, okay, then, well, a sound note on which to leave this, and neither right. side seeking a compromise. But on the subject of compromises, talking, two people are talking. And this is a, a new chapter, really, that is being written in relations between two of South America's biggest countries. In fact, is it a new chapter? Well, it does appear to look that way if the warm words exchanged between the leaders of Brazil and Argentina are anything to go by. Now, during an official visit to Brazil, the Argentinian leader, Maurizio Macri, described his meeting with the country's new president, Jair Bolsonaro, as sensational. Both men have also vowed to fight organised crime and boost trade by modernising the South American trading bloc Mercosur. Before we actually look at that, great words, but it's obviously the mechanics, how you make these things happen. Oscar, how would you describe relations between Argentina and Brazil before we saw this change of government in Brazil? Well, historically speaking, both uh, Brazil and Argentina have been the powerhouses of uh, Latin America. And there is a long tradition of, uh, let's say, rivalry between uh, the two countries. Well, in good-natured rivalry. Yes. In fact, if you go uh, uh, to the south of Brazil, to Rio Grande do Sul and so, on, and, and so on and so forth, you see how similar they are. But as it happens often, because they're very similar, the, the, the rivalry heightens. Uh, and so, the, in that respect, this is uh, somewhat new. But uh, reading between the lines, what we see is two leaders, particularly the Argentinian leader, because Bolsonaro just began, uh, who uh, is uh, quite embattled. The, the uh, uh, Argentinian economy is really in, in dire straits. Mm. And he knows he's facing uh, uh, already political uh, revolt popular revolt, popular uh, responses to those uh, uh, to that uh, crisis. Popular responses similar to what we saw in Brazil that brought Bolsonaro to power? Yes, but uh, in this case, since uh, uh, Macri is the representative of the right, mm. it might go the other way, uh, the other way, in the other direction, something similar to what happened in Mexico. And in fact, uh, we know that uh, it has happened uh, not, not long before in Argentina as well. So they need, because they don't really have any, any economic plans, they don't even have uh, partners, uh, you know, crucial partners in the region. They're trying to align themselves to uh, the U.S. But the Trump administration.
Federation's economic policy is not the kind of uh, liberal uh, policy uh, or ultra-liberal policy that uh, Macri and or Bolsonaro's uh, uh, ministers uh, would favor. So uh, here, what we have is two far right, you know, two leaders of the right, Macri moving to the far right, mm. uh, reluctantly but, perhaps well, because he didn't say, show up. Because he to, was actually has he been yeah. forced into this by circumstances at home, yeah. but also yeah. what's happening beyond it's Argentina. Beyond, yes. Yeah, I think Correct. you know it's the economic. They're both <coughs> seeking help, uh, each one from from the other, uh, and from their partners in South yeah. America and from the European Union. If those long delayed trade talks actually get anywhere, and so on, uh, and they need this because uh, you know the world economy is facing a much less uh, sunny outlook for the mm. moment, and these two leaders, in particular, I think, need a good. Need a vibrant economy, but again, precisely because uh, uh, of what Jonathan uh, uh, points out, we can see that this is more theatrics, more form yeah, that, yeah, than substance. Uh, there isn't really much they can do. Uh, they are rather preparing a sort of preemptive uh, right wing, far right wing, uh, uh, transnational alliance. We will see very soon Piñera from Chile also mm, coming into the fold, yes. and Duque from Colombia, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, they will uh, come up with a, a sort, some sort of political story to distract uh, the peoples from their economic woes, and that story is right. likely to be uh, a regime change in Venezuela. Right, but there, but basically, and it's interesting you were talking there about Venezuela because Venezuela yeah. was a member or is a member of Mercosur, except that the membership was suspended. Yes. So. What are they going to do? They're talking about reviving Mercosur so that it can be a really fantastic vehicle for boosting trade. And yet at the same time, they're also talking about clamping down on Venezuela. How? <laughs> presumably reviving it without Venezuela. Well, certainly. Yeah. I mean, they're going to come with something spectacular. I don't know, expelling Venezuela, even though for yeah. all intents and purposes yeah. that has already happened. As if happened. Venezuela really yeah. cares anyway. Exactly. And sure, the other two partners, Paraguay and Uruguay. Yeah, Paraguay well, and Uruguay. again, there is, there is not much uh, there. So what we... What we are seeing here is more fireworks than something else. Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, this is, you can see the smiles, the handshakes and so on, but there's, I don't think, very much behind it uh, at the moment. So it's, it's basically theatre. But, you know, we talked about the European Union, and I'm not talking Brexit, is <laughs> how close they are to actually cutting this, this trade accord with the EU and what makes the EU important to both countries. And as, as you've pointed out as well, it is a bit of a contradiction because we know that Donald Trump hates the EU because he, he likes to negotiate with countries individually rather than as one big block, and that here we have these two supporting it. And Bolsonaro has affected. Well, he, certainly when he was actually campaigning, he tried to model himself in some ways on, on, on Donald Trump. Yes, but he he needs. You know, Brazil needs the exports. Uh, basically at the moment mm. and <clears throat> to bring in China again you know it's done well uh, on the soybeans particularly uh, replacing the United States but the Chinese economy is slowing down and it's less of the great golden windfall that it was uh, you know in the early July years. That's correct and uh, on top of that uh, uh, Bolsonaro in particular has to uh, do this tightrope walk trying yeah. to balance himself in between the fact that he needs Trump but Trump uh, is a protectionist and uh, sure. he Absolutely. also needs China but if he but goes he's to them negative then, uh, on China but so you know, he needs them yes. Actually this sort of triangulation is going to prove impossible and uh, given the fact that uh, Bolsonaro was elected uh, among many other reasons, mainly because uh, people was a were angry about mm. their economic situation. 
my my take on this is that we'll see uh, the tide turning on Bolsonaro very soon. And uh, I have to say, I feel no pity for him. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it on that note. Basically, what you're saying is he's going to have to row back from some of the things he promised whilst he was out campaigning. But look, coming up next... Food fights down under, we're not responsible because we ain't down under. Can Australia and the European Union solve a row over Aussie feta cheese and Prosecco wine? Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's the Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, a Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Foster Oscar Guardiola Riviera, and Jonathan Fenby. Oscar, I nearly sort of merged my name We're with yours. We're becoming one. We yes, are becoming one. <laughs> time I left, probably, <laughs> to leave you two together. To... Not just yet, not just yet. Now, the last few months haven't been kind to the French president, Emmanuel Macron. Angry protests have erupted in major cities, led by demonstrators in yellow jackets, incensed at government economic measures, which they claim are hurting the poor. Although Macron has given in to some of their demands, that hasn't been enough to rescue his falling approval ratings. Yet, ironically, a new poll has found that the president's En Marche party is ahead of the far-right Front National, led by Marine Le Pen, who Macron defeated in the 2017 presidential election. Now, Jonathan, I'm going to start with you because I mean, you are the go-to person for all things French. Oh, well, well French. thank you. <laughs> now, it's, it's the truth because I have, you know, it's worth pointing out that you've written the history of France and also a biography of, of General de Gaulle. Yep. So you're a very keen observer of French affairs. But look, this poll, it is a measure of voter intent and it is the first time that Macron's party has actually come in ahead of Marine Le Pen since October last year. So should we really be excited by that or are there a few caveats that we need to take into account here? I think here? There, there are quite a few caveats. I quite mean, a few. <laughs> it, it's hit the, the, the en marche. Have hit, they've hit 23%. But that is a long, long way from the kind of sweep that Macron had in the legislative elections after his presidential victory and which he was hoping for uh, this year. I mean, it, it, in the European elections, it was not so long ago that he was talking about a kind of Europe uh, wide en marche movement, mm. which would uh, reproduce what happened uh, in France uh, with with the election there, uh, that clearly uh, has not happened. But I think you know, in these polls, it can change from week to week, day to day, and so on. But in a sense, the more interesting thing, if you look at the actual numbers, is that if you take Le Pen's party, now known as the National Rally or the RN, they've given up the Front National, uh, and you add together the other hard right party. Uh, la France, debout la France, you get 28%. So that is bigger than, than the Macron group. But also, at the same time, you've had further decline from the mainstream right, the Republicans, who are down five points to 10%. And even more striking, 
the Socialist Party, which, you know, was ruling France not so long mm. ago. I mean, I can remember back when I was correspondent in, in, in Paris in the 80s, we were writing about, oh, now the Socialist Party is the natural managerial party of France and mm. so on, it seemed to be. But they're now down to 4%, in, 4%. In, in, 4% in this latest poll, uh, which is rather like, you know, the, the number, the, the very nadir number for the former uh, Socialist President François uh, Hollande. Um, so all this is, A, you know, there are lots of caveats because the numbers can change and mm. it's all quite shallow but shows I think the fragmentation on the one hand the fragmentation of French politics uh, the continuing strength of the hard right uh, and of course there is the hard left uh, too Mélenchon's Insoumis uh, and so on which comes in a bit under 10% in most of the polls and the fact that Macron although his personal uh, rating has gone up uh, somewhat and his you know his his, atti- his fir- relatively firm attitude towards the gilets jaunes, the, the, the yellow jackets, uh, seems to have paid off in the short term anyway, uh, or be paying off there. It's still pretty pretty uh, low numbers for somebody who saw himself as a Jupiterian president ruling from on high. Mm. You know, to be in the mid twenties ain't great. Sure, and that and that is part of the problem, isn't it, Oscar? It's the fact that he he's he is seen as somehow very aloof. There have been quite a few examples of this aloof behaviour when he's he's mingling with ordinary people. But I guess that if you are um, very hopeful about the future of the European project, you're, you're going to be very worried by what Jonathan has said because Macron has been held up as one of the last great liberal hopes in the EU because, you know, we, yeah. we, you know, there was that access with him and Angela Merkel. She, of course, has been forced to stand down. She has a new successor. We don't quite know how she's going to cut the mustard, but this is, these are not good times for the president. In fact, the question is how long it will take for us to acknowledge that European politics have changed beyond recognition. And that has already happened. Uh, most people were pinning their hopes on Macron as the savior of the center. Well, mm-hmm. there is not much to save if we are to believe these numbers. Actually, I think they're pretty disastrous for Macron, precisely for the reasons that Jonathan pointed out. Uh, he was very kind uh, uh, to Macron, perhaps, but actually this is very far from uh, the numbers that he had and needed and would need if he Absolutely. is to remain yeah. as uh, that sort of uh, European beacon. Not only have, he's also having uh, uh, problems with his uh, uh, somewhat makeshift uh, trans-European alliance. For instance, mm-hmm. uh, Ciudadanos in Spain are beginning to uh, come closer to uh, the far-right-wing Vox in Andalusia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Macron uh, already uh, sent a warning to them because, uh, remember, uh, the former minister Villers is now a mayoral candidate in Barcelona. So actually, uh, the story here is that of uh, the total decline of uh, uh, the center Center, of center, mm. centrist politics on the one hand, the total, the almost near, near almost disappearance of the historic parties, the Republican and uh, the Socialists, La France Insoumise. Uh, keeps steady uh, at 10 percent. So you can see that there are, uh, you know, some of the anger is, is moving in that direction. But of course, the real the real danger is that if you put together the two far right parties in France, you see where that anger mm. is uh, uh, yeah. moving yeah. quickly. And sure. this should be a warn a warning for the rest of us. Mm. And of course, it's, it's worth stressing as well, very, very briefly, that uh, Marine Le Pen, she has tried to ally herself with um, with, with the Yellow Vest movement. But Jonathan, very, yeah. very quickly before we move on to the, to the final Final subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, pen, the, the whole question with Macron is he, he committed himself to 
Macronian reforms there, uh, systemic uh, structural reforms in France, those have run into all kinds of difficulties, partly because of the presentation, partly because of the way it was handled and so on. Uh, but he can't abandon those without basically giving mm. up his presidency. Mm. Absolutely, which would undermine, well, obviously they want him to go. But anyway, let's move on now, to finally, to our, to our final, final subject. EU trade officials, they are locked in a fight with Australia over the use of household food names. Aussie food manufacturers want to put feta, parmesan and prosecco on their products even though goods with those names are made in Greece and Italy. However, all is not lost because one possible compromise is to have locally produced goods labelled Australian Prosecco, I guess Australian Champagne, feta cheese. Struth is what I can say. But look, question to both of you. I mean, if you are... A Eurosceptic, okay? This really <laughs> confirms every Eurosceptic's nightmare about the EU. In other words, it's it's made up of meddling bureaucratic time wasters making much ado about nothing. <laughs> yeah, but at, at the same time, I think even, you know, Brexiteers would probably uh, here stand for Stilton. You know, Stilton is British. You're not supposed to talk about Brexit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mild, mild ale is British and so on. And if you have Australian Stilton, I think they would draw a line there. Absolutely. Yeah. I but mean, I remember you, you way know. back when the French were, had this great campaign on champagne. This was the oh, great yeah, that's right. yeah. to, to reserve that. And it basically, you know, where something comes from, it is generally accepted in the EU, should define uh, how it can be called. Food fight and uh, down under sounds like uh, an idea. 1980s song by Men at Work. But, well, <laughs> but, but you would, you're giving your age would, away there. It would be, it would be. I was very little. It would be unfair to to uh, uh, blame uh, uh, you know European bureaucrats there. This is actually more about the way economic life nowadays has more to do with copyright and information Mm. and branding and marketing than anything else and this happens this is a global phenomenon okay then we're going to have to leave it there so we could actually talk about food without getting into a fight so that's very good news (laughs) excellent well that brings us to the end of today's show Oscar Guardiola Riviera and Jonathan Fenby gentlemen thank you both for joining us here at Midori House today's show was produced by Carlotta Robello researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri our studio Studio manager was Christy Evans. More music next, then at 1900 hours, it is The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily. The Monocle Daily, of course, is at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That is 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye.